Spartacus' daughter, The Life and Struggles of Rosa Luxemburg, a podcast by Karol Golewski. Episode 14, Reform of Revolution, Part 4 The reason why capitalism will not be eliminated through reforms, Rosa Luxemburg argues, is because the state is a bourgeois state, built with capitalism at its core, as its foundation. It is also because Parliament is there to defend the bourgeois state over anything else. Therefore, Bernstein's theory of the evolution of the state in society is nothing but utopia, she writes. This is where I really feel personally that her arguments for revolution over reform make perfect sense. Progress achieved through laws passed in Parliament, the protections for workers won by the unions, all of this is necessary, but it will not bring down the bourgeois state. And because it will not bring down the bourgeois state, it makes Rosa question the very idea of democracy, at least of democracy as envisioned by the liberals and the likes of Bernstein. In other words, democracy in the context of a capitalist society and a bourgeois state. To Bernstein's analysis of democracy in Germany over the past 25 to 30 years, she opposes a historical overview of democracy that is her strength, analyzing present situations by the yardstick of what history has taught us. This is what she writes. To Bernstein, democracy is an inevitable stage in the development of society. To him, as to the bourgeois theoreticians of liberalism, democracy is the great fundamental law of historic development, the realization of which is served by all the forces of political life. However, Bernstein's thesis is completely false, Presented in this absolute force, it appears as a petit bourgeois vulgarization of the results of a very short phase of bourgeois development, the last 25 or 30 years. We reach entirely different conclusions when we examine the historic development of democracy a little closer and consider at the same time the general political history of capitalism. Democracy has been found in the most dissimilar social formations, in primitive communist groups, in the slave states of antiquity and in the medieval communes. And similarly, absolutism and constitutional monarchy are to be found under the most varied economic orders. When capitalism began as the first production of commodities, it resorted to a democratic constitution in the municipal communes of the Middle Ages. Later, 
when it developed to manufacturing, capitalism found its corresponding political form in the absolute monarchy. Finally, as a developed industrial economy, it brought into being in France the Democratic Republic of 1783, the absolute monarchy of Napoleon I, the nobles' monarchy of the Restoration period, the bourgeois constitutional monarchy of Louis-Philippe, then again the Democratic Republic, and again the monarchy of Napoleon III, and finally, for the third time, the Republic. In Germany, the only truly democratic institution, universal suffrage, is not a conquest won by bourgeois liberalism. Universal suffrage in Germany was an instrument for the fusion of the small states. It is only in this sense that it has any importance for the development of the German bourgeoisie, which is otherwise quite satisfied with the semi-feudal constitutional monarchy. In Russia, capitalism prospered for a long time under the regime of Oriental absolutism, without having the bourgeoisie manifest the least desire in the world to introduce democracy. In Austria, universal suffrage was above all a safety line thrown to a foundering and decomposing monarchy. In Belgium, the conquest of universal suffrage by the labour movement was undoubtedly due to the weakness of the local militarism and consequently to the special geographic and political situation of the country. But we have here a bit of democracy that has been won not by the bourgeoisie, but against it. The uninterrupted victory of democracy, which to our revisionism as well as to bourgeois liberalism, appears as a great fundamental law of human history and especially of modern history, is shown upon closer examination to be a phantom. No absolute and general relation can be constructed between capitalist development and democracy. The political form of a given country is always the result of the composite of all the existing political factors, domestic as well as foreign. It admits, within its limits, all variations of the scale from absolute monarchy to the democratic republic. We must abandon, therefore, all hope of establishing democracy as a general law of historic development, even within the framework of modern society. Turning to the present phase of bourgeois society, we observe here, too, political factors which, instead of assuring the realization of Bernstein's schema, lead rather to the abandonment by bourgeois society of the democratic conquests won up to now. She concludes this section of her essay with these strong words. 
Democracy does not acquire greater changes of life in the measure that the working class renounces the struggles for its emancipation, but that, on the contrary, democracy acquires greater chances of survival as the socialist movement becomes sufficiently strong to struggle against the reactionary consequences of world politics and the bourgeois desertion of democracy. He who would strengthen democracy should want to strengthen and not weaken the socialist movement. He who renounces the struggle for socialism renounces both the labor movement and democracy. Next, Rosa asks whether the development of democracy renders superfluous or impossible a proletarian revolution, that is, the conquest of the political power by the workers. Bernstein, like Jaurès and others, argues that now is not the time and that for now, social reforms are still progress. To this, Rosa answers, since the proletariat is not in the position to seize power any other way than prematurely, since the proletariat is absolutely obliged to seize power once or several times too early before it can maintain itself in power for good, the objection to the premature conquest of power is at bottom nothing more than a general opposition to the aspiration of the proletariat to possess itself of state power. Just as all roads lead to Rome, so too do we logically arrive at the conclusion that the revisionist proposal to slight the final aim of the socialist movement is really a recommendation to renounce the socialist movement itself. concludes her essay with words from Marx himself. Bourgeois revolutions, wrote Marx, a half-century ago, like those of the 18th century, rush onward rapidly from success to success. The stage effects outbid one another. Men and things seem to be set in flaming brilliance. Ecstasy is the prevailing spirit, but they are short-lived, they reach their climax speedily, and then society relapses into a long fit of nervous reaction before it learns how to appropriate the fruits of its period of feverish excitement. Proletarian revolution, on the contrary, such as those of the 19th century, criticize themselves constantly, constantly interrupt themselves in their own course, come back to what seems to have been accomplished in order to start anew, scorn with cruel thoroughness the half-measures, weakness and meanness of their first attempts, seem to throw down their adversary only to enable him to draw fresh strength from the earth and again to rise up against them in more gigantic stature. 
constantly recoil in fear before the undefined monster magnitude of their own objects, until finally that situation is created, which renders all retreat impossible, and conditions themselves cry out. Hic ruduc, hic salta. Here is the rose, and here we must dance. Next time we'll come back to Rosa in Berlin after the general election and we'll see how she became known within the international, a world dominated by men.